Well, if you open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6, we're not going to cover the whole chapter tonight just because we're going to probably cover about a chapter and a half next week, Lord willing. Um, But if you had to summarize chapter 6 of Proverbs, I think you could summarize it as a Proverbs on short-sightedness. Proverbs on short-sightedness. In other words, thinking only of the present, of the here and the now. Uh, And and examples uh, in this chapter, we're going to see fast money, uh, using man for temporal reasons, easy sex, things basically that our, our culture is deep in. Uh, this, this proverb covers in, in, in detail. So let's get right into the text this evening. And verse 1. My son, if you become shorty for your friend, if you have shaken hands in pledge for a stranger, you are snared by the words of your mouth. You are taken by the words of your mouth. So do this, my son, and deliver yourself. For you have come into the hand of your friend. Go and humble yourself. Plead with your friend. Give no sleep to your eyes, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, and like a bird from the hand of the fowler. And so he gives us right here an example of one being shorty or a guarantor of someone's loan. Uh, today we might call this a cosigner, that someone's going to go and, and cosign someone else's loan. Uh, and we see in verse 2 that this was signified by a handshake or even sometimes a verbal agreement uh, that was made with the debtor. And, and you know, there's a couple debates about who is the debtor here. In verse 1 you notice that there's two uh, phrases used. Number one, your friend. And then we also see that it's a pledge to a stranger. And so is this someone that we know or is it someone that we don't know? Uh, I think there's, there's truth no matter who the person is that we're going to see the bigger issue. Um, I think the question that we have to ask is what is the nature of the co-signature? Is it stating that all co-signing is bad? Or is there a specific circumstance that Solomon is implying, like high interest or or whatnot? Is there a situation where it might be okay to do this, to be shorty? Remember, we're looking at Proverbs, right? So these Proverbs are general truth, but they're not necessarily always absolute in every situation. In fact, sometimes we're going to see Proverbs seemingly contradicting one another. It seems like it's saying one thing here and then another thing in another place. So these are just, if you want to think of it, a good rule of thumb. Whether you're a believer or even a non-believer, if someone was to apply the truth of this book to their life, there's going to be wisdom there. You're going to see benefits because this is how God has created the universe to function. And as the designer, as the creator, he probably knows best uh, what the blueprint is and how things should function. And so when we go opposite of his design, as we go opposite of his blueprint, then things aren't going to function the way that they should. So if I was to try to drive my car uh, in the Potomac River, probably won't function very well because it wasn't created to do so. Rather, when I drive on the highway, I'm free. I can drive that baby, probably not as fast as I'd like to sometimes, but I can be free to drive it. Why? Because it was created for such a reason. Now, in Hebrew culture, uh, which should have been grounded in the laws of the Old Testament, we do know that all people were to provide for the needy or the unable people. They were not to charge interest to the poor. And while the creditor could take a security uh, to secure future payment, for example, they would take a garment sometimes from someone, and that garment would represent that person. 
so sometimes they could take that, that security, uh, but today's interest that we know of it as loans, it didn't exist in those days. You know, our, our whole society, in a way, is built on interest. It's built on loans uh, that, that are very different from what they would have done in biblical times. And so we, we have to understand, I guess, what it would have meant for this time and then try to apply it to our time as well. Um, I think something we have to think about is this. If someone needs a co-signature today, we want to be practical with this. If someone asks you, for example, could you co-sign my loan? Number one, that puts you in a little bit of an awkward position, right? Whether it's a friend or whether it's a stranger, I don't know what's more dif difficult. I think there's different ways that both of them are difficult. The first question I would ask is why does this person need it in the first place? Why do, they, why do you need me to co-sign? Is it because the person has no credit history or is it because they have bad credit? In my mind, there's a big difference there. Uh, if they have bad credit, that means they've probably mismanaged their finances and now they want to mismanage yours. <laughs> and so in my mind, in that case, this teaching definitely applies to you. That's why we do those credit checks today, right? Thank the Lord for those, especially if you're in the uh, landlord business or other occupations, you can see those things today. Um, there may be times though, uh, for example, as a parent, I think of an example when you have a teenager and that teenager wants to drive, hasn't had a job, hasn't had a credit history, so what do you do? They need a car to get to work. Some parents may gift that child a car. Other parents may actually say, you know what, I want you to develop responsibility and learn what it means to have certain payments. So they may take that child, purchase a vehicle, co-sign on it so that they can teach that child responsibility. Um, again, the bottom line though that I think we have to ask is, am I truly helping a person or am I enabling? And we're going to look at that, another part of this here in a second. I think a second question we'd have to ask is this. As a co-signer, what are my motives? I think sometimes when it comes to finances, pride, especially for guys, can get in the way where we want people to think that we have maybe what we really don't. And so what are my motives for doing something like this? Or maybe I'm short-sighted and I don't think about the consequences and what could happen down the road. I just have a kind heart and I'll, yeah, sure, I'll, you know, I don't even think about it. But there, there are possible ramifications. I think the third big thing is what's my ability as a co-signer? Can I presently pay off the loan should the borrower not? Or if that person isn't able to pay, and I think this is really what Solomon's getting at here, if that person doesn't pay the loan, guess who has to? And so do I have the ability to pay for it without it impacting negatively myself or my family? In my mind, if I have a teenage son and I co-sign for the car, I better have enough money to pay for that thing if, if something happens out of my control. So again, uh, Proverbs is not giving us this black and white, everything applies to one situation scenario, but he does want to give us wisdom. And so if I'm enabling poor management, if I have a wrong motive or I cannot pay a loan without hardship, then this text definitely applies. So we see here in verse 3, this is his wisdom here. This is his counsel. If, if you find yourself in that position, do this, my son, and deliver yourself. For you have come into the hand of your friend. Go and humble yourself. It's better to humble yourself than have to deal with the possible consequences that could arise. Plead with your friend. 
right? Give no sleep to your eyes. Do this before the sun goes down. Let this be the next thing you do. No, nor slumber to your eyelids. Deliver yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter or like a bird from the hand of the fowler. If a gazelle or a bird gets captured, what does it do? It exerts every ounce of energy in getting out. And the sooner, the better. Because you don't know what the next hour holds if you're that animal. You know, your neck may be next. And so you're trying to get out of that situation. Wisdom for us today. And, and you know, I would just encourage you if that's an area that, um, that maybe you need wisdom in. Uh, on, our, on Reveal FM, there's Money Wise with Rob West, a great ministry that can really help people with money management. There's uh, Christian counselors who can assist with that type of thing. So it's really neat to see the body of Christ using biblical principles to teach people wisdom when it comes to finances because we know this is such a source of issue, especially when we look at marriage uh, and relationships and how finances can be one of those sore spots that really bring division within uh, what should be a tight-knit group of people. Verse 6. We're going to switch off here now. I like this verse 6. You've probably read this before. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Anyone like that word sluggard? You don't hear that very often anymore. New Living Translation actually translates it lazy bones. <laughs> Go to the ant, you lazy bones. Go, wake up. He's, notice right off the bat he's exhorting to Go. In other words, this sluggard has been stationary. They haven't been doing anything. And so right off the bat, there's a command to go and consider the ant and her ways. That means to gaze at the ant, look at that ant, and understand how it's doing what it's doing and why it's doing what it's doing. We should learn from the ant. Now, in a way, this is sad. Because here you have someone who's created in the very image of God having to take lessons from an ant. A creeping thing, right? That's not the way I think it's supposed to go. So already we know something's not right here. It should be the opposite way around. The ants should be watching us and saying, that's how you do it. Unfortunately, I don't think it's the case many times. So the ant here is a picture of wisdom, foresight, and hard work. In other words, the ant does not just live for the here and now, but rather works hard and with a purpose with the future in its mind, right? That's the wisdom that God's given the ant. Amazing how he's implanted this wisdom in such a tiny little creature. Amazing to see how intricate these little critters can be, especially when they get in your house, right? Sometimes they outfool us. We think we got them all, and then they outsmart us. And so verse 7, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. So the motive of the ant, again, is not to please an overseer, right? There is none. There's no people pleasing here for the ant. The ant is not the, the, the person who, when the boss is around, does a really good job, and when the boss leaves, all of a sudden, everybody kick back and put your shoes off, and that might not smell very good, but that's what some people do. So the idea here is the ant works hard regardless of whether someone's watching or not. In fact, there is no overseer when it comes to the ant. And as believers, isn't that supposed to be a picture of what we do? You know, when you're at your job and everyone else just, the, the boss is gone and everyone else kind of takes a day to slack off, you know, how do, how do I respond to that? 
And many times, I know in my life, you know, people look at that and they, they will accuse you of being, you know, stuck up, uh, you know, you're trying to kiss up to the boss, who do you think you are? I mean, there's a lot of resistance here when we try to act like the ant as a witness for Christ. But we really should be the best workers there are, I believe. People should look at us. They may not believe in what we believe, but they should be able to say, you know what, I can trust this person. This person will be there when they're supposed to be there. They're going to be dependable. Their word is their word. They're a hard worker whether I'm there or not. You know, we're not there to please man. We're there to please the Lord. And so really, this kind of goes back to that fear of the Lord thing that we've been talking about in Proverbs. See, if we have a fear of the Lord and we believe that the Lord is present, it doesn't matter who's watching. We know that he is. And so we serve him, we don't do it unto people. If, if we do it unto people, then we'll typically only do it as long as they're nice to us. And in the minute that that boss maybe treats me a way I don't like, guess what? My work's going to be affected by that because I'm doing it with the wrong motive. And so look at the ant. The ant has no boss, and yet they work hard. And they work in preparation for the future. And in the nation of Israel, these are probably referred to as harvester ants. These ants would store their grains uh, in a nest. And what they did during the harvest, this is really interesting, they had two months to store up for the remainder of the year. They had two months of harvest where they had to get busy, right? If you only have two months and you're slacking, you're in trouble because two months go by very fast. And so we see in verse 9, notice as he refers to the ant, he now places the focus on the sluggard. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? When he says how long, the idea is the harvest has already begun. The two-month clock has already started, and he hasn't yet stored up for the future. He's just sitting around. In fact, he's sleeping. Now, in verse 9, again, the idea is He's asleep, but notice in verse 10, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. When it says a little sleep, literally it could be translated a few sleeps. Just a few sleeps. Little by little. Notice three times he says little, little, little. And it speaks of a progression here. It's, in other words, it's not the sluggard saying, I won't work. I refuse to work. That's not the picture here that's painted by the text. Rather, what the sluggard is saying is, I'll do it later. Not now. Let me just get a little bit more sleep. Let me just escape from my reality a little bit longer. And, he, and I love this quote. He does not commit himself to a refusal, but deceives himself by the smallness of his surrenders. So by, so by inches and minutes... His opportunity slips away. What a lesson the ants in Israel can teach us. Amazing. And notice the effects of that in verse 11. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler, and your need like an armed man. It's going to hit you quickly. And, and I just want to focus real quick on this. You know, there's the Lord's part, and there's our part, right? You know, God will do what only God can do. He's promised in his word. When we go through Philippians 4, we're going to see he promises he's going to provide for all of our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. It's a promise as believers we can take to the bank that God will provide for us. He may not give us all we want, 
but he promises to provide for our needs. But what he won't do is if I need a job, he's not going to go looking for that job for me, is he? I'm not going to sit there in the bed and say, oh, I am so spiritual. I'm just going to levitate here and meditate. And Jesus is just going to fulfill every desire because he promises to answer every prayer. And I know it's his will that I work. You know, it says in the word that we're supposed to work. And so I know that I can take that to the bank. He's going to give me that job. And then I just sleep there in bed waiting for him to give me that job. He's not going to do what he calls me to do, right? Or even working hard. He's not going to work hard for me. He'll give me the ability to work hard. He'll give me the opportunity and the energy and the grace I need, whatever I need at that moment, to do it. But again, he's not going to do it for me. There's his part and there's our part. Remember in the Old Testament with the poor. Remember how they would go and there were the gleanings that the poor would get, the leftovers that were required for people to leave behind. But what's interesting is this. The farmers did not distribute that stuff to the poor. Rather, if you were able-bodied, you had to go into the field and gather it for yourself. In other words, the Lord does not allow enabling. He wants us to empower people to work. He wants people to work. It's a command of his word. And it's not always the the job of our first choice, right? Sometimes you got to just take a job to take a job. You got to pay bills. You got to support your family. You got to do what you have to do, even if we don't like it. But, but I've realized this, you know, work is not bad in and of itself. Do you realize that work came before the fall? That God gave Adam things to do before sin entered the picture. Why? Well, because God works. Remember, Jesus himself said the Father always works. He's always working. That the Lord himself works. We are created in the image of God. We work because he works. And therefore, work is a good thing. But when sin entered the picture, that's where the thorns and the thistles enter. That's where work becomes work as we know it. Why? Well, two reasons. One, you're going to work with creation. And so if you're working with the ground, there's thorns and thistles. Or, guess who else is part of creation? Us. And so when you work with people, there's thorns and thistles, aren't there? There's difficulties. There's challenges. Today, one of the saddest things I see in our society in America, um, you know, we, we have women really having to pick up slack in our society as we look at the number of fatherless homes in, in the world today. Um, it's, it's hard for the ladies in our society. And, and many of the ladies, you know, they're dealing with not only the pain of childbirth and seeing the effects of that, but they're having to pick up the slack and work three jobs just to provide ends meet when we look at all the single mothers in our world today. In a sense, they're not only bearing the, the pain of childbirth, they're not only bearing the curse that was placed upon women, they're also having to bear the curse that was placed upon men. It's a very difficult time in our history. But one of the beautiful things is that I've seen through the years, and this is, this is one of the things that makes me so excited for what God's doing here in, in this church, is I've seen the Lord redeem men who have been in a cycle to where maybe they didn't even have a father. Teach them what it means. These things that we're going through in Proverbs, we have a whole generation of men who have never been taught what it means to be a man. And we've had women trying to fill that gap so often. And what I love is I look at what the Lord's doing in our addictions house and broken chains 
is that the Lord's able to redeem and he's able to stop cycles and he's able to equip men to be there to fill in that gap that maybe didn't even know how to and so I'm so excited as I come you know last Friday I came here and I saw the two guys in their Bibles and what a joy it brought to my heart to seeing men in the Word of God you know God preparing our guys for what awaits them and so we get to verse 12 now and we're going to enter a new section again he's changing the story for us a little bit here in verse 12 a worthless person a wicked man walks with a perverse mouth he winks with his eyes he shuffles his feet he points with his fingers perversity is in his heart he devises evil continually he sows discord and therefore his calamity shall come suddenly suddenly he shall be broken without remedy and so we see here introduced this worthless person, this wicked man. That word worthless, literally this person could be a troublemaker of all sorts. Literally, it would, could be translated a son of Belial. And in New, in New Testament thought, in Jewish thought, Belial would actually become a name for Satan. Did you know that? Wow. That's powerful. Interesting the timing too. And so in, in Jewish thought and New Testament thought, again, this word would be used of Satan himself. If you want to reference 2 Corinthians 6.15. And as we look at the remainder of the section, we will see that this man has actually become just like Satan. Very humbling. Notice... There, there's a biblical theme that I, you'll hear me say from time to time, and it's this. You become like the God you worship. You become like the God you worship. You see, there's on, ultimately only two kingdoms in this world. There's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, and then there's the kingdom of Satan. And there's no real partiality with God. Either you're for him or you're against him. To be neutral is to be against him. And therefore, if I am neutral when it comes to Christ, if I am neutral when it comes to the gospel, if I am against the Lord, that means guess whose team I'm really on? I'm really on Satan's team at that point. And we, we realize as believers, we were once blinded by the enemy. We were deceived by him. And ultimately, here's the sad part. Again, you become like the God you worship. If you refuse to worship the Lord, you will become everything that he's not. We see this in Romans chapter 1. If you've ever, you know, don't turn there right now, but if you're taking notes, Romans chapter 1 is a perfect picture of when man refuses to worship God, God gives him over to his own desires, right? The Lord says, you don't want to worship me. I'm not going to force you to worship me. I'll give you what you want. I'll give you that independence. God gives man to his own desires. And in verses 28 through 31, we see man becomes everything that God is not. But it doesn't stop there. Because in verse 32, this is what verse 32 says. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. 
In other words, this person knows, not only does this person know that they're going down, let me bring other people down with me. Now whose mentality is that? Who knows that his time is short and he wants to bring down as many people as possible? See, you become like the God you worship. And man here is presented before us as another example. And we're going to see how this sin affects the whole person. Notice in verse 12, again, he is called a worthless man, a wicked man. And he walks with a perverse mouth. And so he's going to start from the top here. We see the mouth is affected by this perversity. But also in verse 13, now we're going to work down. We have the eyes. He winks with his eyes. And he probably is making some type of gesture here. He shuffles his feet. He points with his fingers. Perversity is in his heart, right? And he devises evil continually. He sows discord. Where does this all begin? Verse 14, I believe it begins with the heart, right? See, we can look at the outward parts of it. We can see the eyes winking. We can see where he walks. We can see the mouth. We can listen to what he says. But really, it's a sign of a heart disease, it's a sign that the heart is not right with the Lord. And there's perversity in the heart. His heart is crooked. It's not the way it was created to be. And he desires evil continually, right? Reminds you of maybe right before the flood, when the desires of man's heart were evil, wicked continually before the Lord. And in fact, we know that when the Lord returns, it's going to be as the days of Noah, that men's hearts will be wicked and, and deceitful. And filled with all kinds of self-centeredness and selfishness. And when we turn on the news, isn't that what we see? I mean, we see, of course, natural disasters with our, which our Lord prophesied would, would, would increase in frequency uh, as, as his near return uh, draws near. But we also see the heart of man. There's something happening in our society this day that we see the heart of man is just growing darker and darker and darker. And things that we thought were unheard of 15 years ago are now just becoming commonplace. And it starts with the heart, right? It starts with the heart of man and it impacts every area of our life. That's the point. He's giving us these different body parts to show you that all of us are affected by the, the, the uh, outflow of our hearts. In verse 15, therefore his calamity shall come suddenly Suddenly, he shall be broken without remedy. This is the reality. He was living for the moment, and the text implies, we're going to see in the next verse, that God will intervene. See, the sudden judgment, it's almost as if he's been living this way for a certain amount of time, and all of a sudden, boom, the hammer drops. Whether that be death, whether that be a form of judgment here on this earth, the wicked will not prosper, though they may seem to prosper for a season. Because notice in verse 16 now, he's going to take that wicked man, that worthless man, and he's going to show us now the mind and heart of God. Verse 16, these six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. Now this is a, sort of a poetic function that he's using here. Notice he begins with six, then he goes to seven. Uh, it's not a conclusive list of things that the Lord hates, right? The Lord hates sin, period. But he's showing us that these are six, yes, seven things. This is an emphasis. These are things that God detests. In fact, it uses that word abomination. And I don't know about you, but there's few words in all of Scripture that carry the weight of that term 
abomination. It, 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 there's a level to it that I think hopefully would get our attention. And, and you know, as Christians, I think sometimes the danger, because, and rightfully so, we absolutely love the mercy and grace of God. Apart from that, no one would stand. But may we never forget, because of that grace and mercy, may we never forget that God still hates sin. He hates it so much that literally it cost him his son. And so may we never think that somehow sin doesn't matter to God because, well, he'll forgive me. That was, that was my mentality for 20 years of my life. It's all about grace. He'll forgive me. You know what that showed? That showed I had no clue of what grace really was. That showed that I have no clue of what Jesus really accomplished for me on the cross when I just felt like sin was no big deal. That's okay. I got my fire insurance. But it's an abomination to him. Notice the first thing that he notes here in in verse 17. A proud look. A haughty look that reveals the pride of the heart. Remember in the New Testament, Jesus tells of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Pharisee's there saying, oh Lord, I thank you I'm not like him. I fast, Lord. I give. I do all this stuff, Lord. Look at me. In fact, it actually says in the text he, he was praying to himself. I love that. If you really pay attention to the language there. He was, he was talking to himself. And then you have this, this, this sinner who can't even look up to heaven and just beats his chest. and God forgive me, a sinner. The Lord hates a proud look. He hates pride. I believe this is number one on the list because I believe, personally, I think this is the sin of all sin. I believe this is the sin that keeps man from submitting to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the sin that actually casts Satan out of heaven. And notice, remember we said that when you refuse to worship the Lord, you will become like his enemy. You're at war with the Lord when you're not on his team, so to speak. And so a proud look, a lying tongue. Again, we also know who the father of lies is, right? We know who is the originator of lies. It's his native language whose hands shed innocent blood. And I think all of us understand as we live in America in this day and age, since 1973, we understand that this nation is guilty of terrible innocent bloodshed. Um, And we understand even from the text, most of the time when it talks about shedding of innocent blood, usually it's tied to greed in Scripture many times, uh, or envy. Jesus was handed over because of envy. Um, Judas was also motivated with greed. And so we see those two things go hand in hand. But what we know from since 1973, when the U.S. legalized abortion in our society, um, the innocent blood that's been shed in this country is just staggering. You know, and I, I just did a little bit of statistics. If, if that's something that interests you, there's usually two different places you can find statistics on abortion. One is the CDC. The other one is the Guttmacher Institute, which is an independent arm of Planned Parenthood. Um, those statistics are a little bit different from one another. The CDC actually does not require certain states to report, including California and New York, I believe, which are two of the leading uh, places that abortions take place. 
But nevertheless, just a couple of statistics that as you look at the, the, the range of statistics with our society, while abortions actually have declined, praise God, since the 1980s, there's been a steady decline by God's grace. Uh, but in 2017, 18% of all U.S. pregnancies, not including spontaneous miscarriages, ended in abortion. In 2015, 35% of pregnancies in New York City were abortions. 35%. As someone who lived and worked in New York City, it's staggering to me that 35% of the children who are conceived in that city are slaughtered. 86% of abortions are performed on unwed women. And you know, I would just say, we're, we're going to see the big picture of this here in a second, but you know, it's vulnerable people. It's vulnerable people who many times are targeted with this. Women in their 20s versus teens are actually the, make the vast majority. 10% of white female pregnancies end in an abortion. 28% of black female pregnancies end in an abortion. There's one abortion in America every 30 seconds. And since 1973, nearly 60 million abortions have been performed. That's nearly an entire generation that's been wiped out from our country's history. We look at Planned Parenthood, which is the leading provider of abortions in our country, and there's this bent towards abortion. When you look at their policies, you look at how they operate. In 2017, for every one adoption referral that they made, 83 abortions were performed. Why? Money. Greed. Because in 2013-14, they had a total income of $1.3 billion. 2017, $1.6 billion. It's a money-making machine. And vulnerable women are caught in its crosshairs. When you look at the demographics, they're usually poor, lack support, lack people who are there to help. And guess what? They're introduced to this without many times even being shown what's going on inside of them. And studies have shown if you can actually get a woman to get a scan done, the, the, the chance of abortion goes down dramatically. But it's, it's about greed. It's about money. And women are caught in the crosshairs many times. Now, just in recent years, it's, it's reached a level I honestly never dreamed of, and that's where we, we actually see women online celebrating having an abortion, which when, if you've ever talked to a woman, the average woman who's had an abortion, it's devastating. And as Christians, you know, I support those ministries that want to love on the women, the women who are thinking about it, and even the women who have, because we realize that that's the heart of the Lord. But there's actually women today who are flaunting it and, and, and celebrating it as if it's something that's good. Jesus himself called Satan a murderer. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans. Again, it goes back to the heart, right? Feet that are swift in running to evil. A false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among the brethren. Again, who's the father of lies? Who is the accuser of the brethren? Who's the author of confusion, right? So you see, again, as you reject the Lord, you become everything he's not. But again, it's not like a neutral thing here. <laughs> you either, for Christ, or ultimately you become like the enemy. 
The bottom line is that this self-centered, self-serving heart becomes everything that God is not. And remember from verse 15, there is judgment for sin that comes suddenly. And everyone who tried to hurt the victims, it actually ends up boomeranging on them. And they end up getting themselves. Why? Because he's opposed to his maker. This wicked man is opposed to the Lord. This is the heart that crucified Jesus Christ. But we, we understand that the Lord used for what man meant for bad, for eternal good. Isn't that amazing? You know, one of the greatest things about the gospel is the fact that what the, Lord, what the, what the enemy meant for bad, what the wickedness of man's hearts meant for bad, God flipped it around and used it for eternal good. You know, as we look at these things, you know, I realize Proverbs, it, it hits you like a hammer sometimes. And that's not my goal at all. I mean, I, I look at this list, and it's convicting, right? Because I think we look at this list and we realize, Lord, that's me apart from your grace. I can't look at anyone else when I look at this list. I look at this and I think, Lord, the pride in my heart, the lies that have come from this mouth, the things that I've done. But thank the Lord that he is opposite of everything this man has become. In fact, in the Beatitudes, when you look at the first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, it's the opposite of the first one here, a proud look. When you look at the seventh one here, uh, the fact that the, uh, the person who sows discord, what's the seventh Beatitude? It's blessed are the peacemakers. So you look at the Beatitudes that Jesus taught and he shows how they oppose this wickedness in the heart of man. And, and ultimately, Jesus himself is the opposite of this. You know, Jesus is humble, right? Jesus speaks truth. He saves lives. His heart is pure. He walks in perfect righteousness. His witness is true and he brings unity to the brethren. And I just want to say tonight that no matter what sin we've committed, we look at these six things God hates, seven yes that are abomination to him, that's why he died. That's why as Christians we have good news, right? We don't go and just condemn. We don't just say, well, you're in trouble, man. You've done this, and so now you're an abomination to the Lord. Good luck. I've actually heard people preach that way. It's sad. I've heard people go to women who've had abortions and have this kind of language instead of ministering grace and hope and forgiveness because there's no sin that his blood won't cleanse. He went lower. You know, I was talking to Rob the other day. I mean, this is not a subject that I enjoy talking about, to be honest with you. Because I realize it is something that hits hard. But for every look you take to yourself, take ten looks to the Lord. Realize His grace is sufficient. Realize His blood is sufficient to cover and cleanse. And as far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our sin from us. We have good news. We have a Savior. We have a God who's the opposite of this. Praise the Lord. And so it's good news, even though sometimes Proverbs hits us over the head and reminds us of how far we really have to go. But here's the beautiful thing, and we'll close with this. You know, you, you do become like the God you worship. You refuse to worship the Lord, you will become everything that God is not. But when you choose to worship the Lord and you put him first in your life, you will become like him. And that's his eternal plan for us as believers. So when you look at that list, I realize still, I have a long way to go. I'm not where I want to be. But by God's grace, he's conforming us into the image of his son. And he'll be faithful to do so. Let's pray.